0: I was reading in the paper that last week a British man spent £215,000 on a new sports car. It was a McLaren 650S. Now, I don't know a lot about cars. Some of you will probably know what that means. But 0 to 100 in 3.1 seconds, that sounds pretty fast to me. It turned out it was a bit too powerful for the guy who bought it because he only had it for 10 minutes. Before he crashed into a tree. He missed a corner on his first drive. A bit embarrassing, really. He had completely underestimated its power. He probably knew that he was getting a powerful car. He just didn't realise how powerful. Now, in the part of the Bible that we're looking at today, you heard the first part of it read there earlier, the Philistines completely underestimate the power of God. Now, I don't think any of us will be getting a McLaren 650S anytime soon. Maybe there's something I don't know about, not sure. But we are in danger of us underestimating the power of God, or at least for looking at his power in the wrong places. And that's what we'll be thinking about this morning. Now, as we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5, it's easy to see why the Philistines had underestimated God's power. Because if you cast your minds back to last week in chapter 4, the Israelites, you might remember, had marched into battle against the Philistines and the Israelites had taken the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Ark means box, you might remember. This is not Noah's Ark, this is the Ark of the Covenant. It is the box with the Ten Commandments in it. And up until now in the Old Testament, God had been using that Ark to lead his people. But last week, you might remember, God's people decided to take the the Ark of the Covenant into battle without consulting him. They were trying to lead God into battle. It's a bit like the movie The Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's nothing to do with God at that point. It's all to do with this box being a lucky charm that everyone wants because it's powerful. The Israelites thought they were invincible. They had the box last week. But when the two nations fought, Israel were smashed. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. Today the action moves to the Philistine territory. So by the end of 1 Samuel 4, the Israelites' priests were dead, the 30,000 Israelites are dead, the Ark was gone. And you could look at that from the outside and think, where's God's power? What is God doing here? Now, we as the readers, of course, know why that all happened. God deliberately brought defeat on His own people to punish them for their disobedience, and He'd warned them about that. But the Philistines don't know that. They think they've won because they fought well. They are stoked. They think they have beaten the God of the Israelites. They have the ark. And they take the Ark and they stick it in their temple. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now I've got a little map here roughly to show you what's going on. That's the Dead Sea there on the right. And that dark area is the Philistine territory. Now, Jerusalem's right there in the middle, but Jerusalem really isn't in the action yet. Nothing's going on there yet. That arrow up the top is where the ark has gone so far. It started up at Shiloh. That's where all the action started in 1 Samuel. And it has just arrived at Ashdod, right there in the middle of the Philistine territory on the coast. Now, I don't have uh, many trophies. But the last trophy that I won was the 1995 ABC Social Club B grade squash comp winner. I came first. Yep, it was B grade, but I came first. A trophy is a sign of your victory over the enemies, and you know you're sort of uh, depending on who you are. You might hide it away in the cupboard, or you might put it up on the front of your bookcase. The Philistines here have the ultimate trophy. They have the Ark of the Covenant of the God of Israel and it's showing their victory over him and they stick it in the temple of their God, Dagon. Now, this isn't the first time that we've heard about Dagon. Dagon came up in the book of Judges, which is the book just before 1 Samuel. It wasn't that long ago. You might remember back there, the Philistines captured Samson. You know, he let his hair be cut. He was uh, hoodwinked. And then they poke out Samson's eyes and they take him into the temple of Dagon where they're celebrating their victory and they're offering sacrifices to their god Dagon. And you might remember there Samson prays one prayer to God and then he's given power and he pushes the pillars and the temple of Dagon comes crashing down. I imagine that must have been pretty disappointing for the Philistines. I imagine they don't like the Israelites much. Here they are now, probably only 10 or 20 years later, they don't just have Samson, they have the Ark of the Covenant of Israel's God. This time it's for real, they have finally defeated the God of the Israelites. They must have been pretty pumped. They must have been pretty excited. So they carry the Ark and they put it up in Dagon's temple like a trophy beside Dagon to show how powerful Dagon is and to show how weak the God of the Israelites is. Look at what happens the next morning, verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. It's God one, Dagon zero. For some reason, Dagon has fallen over in the middle of the night and he's face down before the ark. Now, not much is said about it. I guess if your God falls over in the night and he's lying face down in front of the box that you've just captured, you probably don't want to think about it too much. It's a bit like when your mobile phone goes off in church or down at the movies and you quickly turn it off and hope no one's noticed. They pick up Dagon, they put him back in his place. The next night, things don't go too well either. Verse 4. But the following morning, when they rose... There was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. God 2, Dagon 0. This time it's a bit more awkward though, isn't it? He's lying down in front of the Ark again, but his head's fallen off. And his hands have broken off. You sort of can't just stand him up again this time. That would look a bit silly. It's pretty embarrassing for the poor old Philistines. It looks like a bit of a joke. It is a bit funny to read. But it's not a joke, is it? Because it's not just a lump of stone falling over. It's God's judgment coming on the Philistines. And we see that as we read on. Dagon's hands might have fallen off, but we find out that it's God's hand God's strong hand that is at work here, and it's not just on Dagon, it's on the people too. Look at verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumours. Now, the Philistines know straight away where this judgment is coming from. See verse 7. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel to Gath. God 3, Dagon 0. Now they decide to move the Ark onto a different Philistine city, to Gath, which is over there. It's right over the east side of the Philistine territory, kind of, you know, as far away from Ashdod as we can get it. But exactly the same thing happens at Gath. Look at verse 9. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. God four, Dagon zero. And what happens now, as you read on, is it turns into this massive game of hot potato. It's kind of like a reverse pass the parcel. No one wants it. It used to be that everyone wanted the Ark because it was the sign of God's power. Now no one wants the Ark because it's the sign of God's judgment. And so the people in Gath, they decide to send the Ark on up there to Ekron. But the people of Ekron try to get rid of it before it even arrives, Look at verse 10. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel round to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines again and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people for death. Had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. To cut a long story short, the Philistines come to their senses. They realise that the God of Israel is not as weak as they thought he was, and they decide to send the ark back to Israel. Now we're going to see what happens when it gets back to Israel next week. But they send the ark back to Israel here and they send it with a kind of peace offering. So that they really are afraid of God. This, this strange offering is that they make five tumours, because that's what they're afflicted with, out of gold. And then five rats. Now people have some interesting guesses as to why rats. I'll let you chat about that over morning tea. Might be a good morning tea discussion as you're eating your... Um, tea and scones, why they chose rats and um, tumours. But the point is, even the Philistines themselves realise that when you have wronged God, you can't just ignore it. A price needs to be paid for what you've done wrong. Some kind of peace offering needs to be made with God. And so they send these gifts off with the ark as a way of saying sorry to God. And if that's not weird enough they stick the ark on a cart behind two cows not two donkeys not two oxen two lactating cows now this seems to be some kind of a test to make sure this really is the work of god they want to get rid of the ark it's causing so many problems but you know, they, they don't want to get rid of it because that would be admitting that their God is not as strong as the Israelite God. So they don't make it too easy for the ark to go. They put up a test. Verse 7. Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have carved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Now... I wouldn't call myself a farmer by any stretch of the imagination, but recently we have had cows who have had calves, and we've tried to separate them, and let me tell you there must be a trick that we don't know because the calf pushes through the fence. The cow jumps the fence. They just want to be together. They are bleating all night. You can't get to sleep. They're worse than the roosters. Look, I imagine even a city person knows that a cow wants to be with its calf, so what happens here is these two cows are put on the, in front of the cart and the calves are locked up and yet these cows do not turn back to their calves. They walk straight to Beth Shemesh complaining all the way. Verse 12. Well, let's do it from verse 10. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up the calves they placed the ark of the Lord on the cart, and along with the chest containing the gold rats and the model of the models of tumours. Then the cows went straight up to Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing—that is, complaining all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now it's a bit strange these goings on, but the point is clear. God is powerful. Actually, I've got a little map there. There we are. The ark is on its way back to Israel. Now, the point is clear, though. God is powerful. Dagon has fallen flat on his face. The people have been covered with tumours. And now the cows just leave their calves behind and take the ark all the way home. Now, God might be displaying his power in unexpected ways. But God is powerful. He can bring victory out of what looked like defeat. And that lesson is a lesson that comes up again and again in the Bible. God brings victory from defeat. Now, the Bible tells us that the entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And it's not too hard to work out how that points to Jesus, is it? Because that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He bought victory from defeat. He bought victory from what looked like weakness and failure. See, when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus, the son of God, he seemed to be defeated. Just like here, when it looked like God was defeated when the Philistines captured the ark. His enemies thought they had won. For Jesus, the Jews, King Herod, Satan himself, they had been trying to defeat Jesus for years and they finally thought they had won. They had the ultimate trophy, the King of the Jews, hanging on a cross, on display, pathetic. It looked like God was defeated. And yet in that, God had the victory, didn't he? Because in the death of Jesus, that is where we see the greatest display of God's glory, of God's power. Because the death of Jesus is where we see God taking away our sin. Jesus' death was an offering to God for what we have done wrong. And it was Jesus' death that defeated the power of Satan. As Jesus died, he took our punishment away. And the so-called weakness of the cross was God's greatest victory. In fact, Colossians says, In the cross, God disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them. If you want to see the power of God, it's not seen in the normal place that our world looks for power and victory. It's seen in the cross. That sounds weak, doesn't it? There is no doubt about it. We are talking about a man who was executed on a cross. Have you ever sat down and thought about how foolish that sounds to people who are not Christians? Here's a piece of Roman graffiti from about 200 AD, just a couple of hundred years after Jesus. It was found carved into some plaster on a wall in Rome. It's got a pit- picture there of Jesus with a donkey head on a cross, and the cartoon says Alexaminos worships his God. 200 AD, and someone is mocking Christians because they worship a man who was crucified on a cross and he looked like a donkey. It looks a joke. Don't be embarrassed about it. Don't underestimate the power of the cross. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel, the message about Jesus' death and resurrection, is where the power of God is. It's that message that changes people's lives. That's where we need to put our confidence. We don't put our confidence in our power to change ourselves. We don't put our confidence in our clever discussion to talk other people into becoming followers of Jesus. No, the power of God is in the message of Jesus crucified. And it looks foolish. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And it does, it looks foolish. To our world, God looks like a wuss. And yet we know that the message of the cross changes lives. So, we don't go looking for something more spectacular. We don't go around looking for some new message that will be more attractive to the people around us. Paul says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's where the power of God is. And it can be so easy for us to look around today and think, where's God's power? What is God doing today? Why, how can God let scripture be banned in schools in other states? How can God let the government replace scripture classes with ethics classes? Is God weak? Is God losing the battle there? If God is so powerful, how come he lets politicians implement policies that are not Christian? What's God doing? Where's his power? How is he letting our society be moved to a point where it's willing to consider gay marriage? How can God let Christians in other countries be tortured and killed? If God is powerful, why doesn't he step in and stop that? Why is God letting Islam spread? Is God weak today? Why doesn't God cause some of those things to fall flat on their face? It's because ultimately God's power is not seen in those things. God doesn't start by transforming structures or governments or the education system. That's where we would start. God starts by transforming lives, hearts, One by one, through the gospel, he brings people from death to life. The power of God is in the gospel. And when you share that gospel with someone, when you take that step of sharing that foolish, embarrassing message that looks crazy to the world with someone who's your friend, or someone who you work with, or your neighbour, when you do that, you are at the centre of God's plans to change this world. When you teach someone at Kids Church the Gospel, you are handling God's powerful Gospel. When you encourage someone at Small Group with the Gospel, or when you just catch up over a cup of coffee, or fixing a car, and you talk about Jesus... You are at the centre of God's plan to change the world. Because that's where the power of God is. 1 Samuel 5 was there to encourage the Israelites that even when God looked weak, even when they had failed, their God was still powerful. How much more confident can we be understanding what Jesus has done in the cross? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the message about Jesus and his death for us. And Father we want to thank you that when we heard that message we didn't run away from it and treat it as foolish but we thank you that you by your powerful spirit opened our eyes and opened our hearts and caused us to see the truth of the gospel. And Father thank you that by trusting that message you have saved us. You have forgiven us. And thank you that by your spirit you transform us. And yet we, we confess that we believe the world's lie. And we look for your power in other places. And we try and bring about change in our lives from other things other than the gospel. And we even at times get embarrassed about the gospel and sharing it with our friends. But thank you that in the cross of Jesus, we see your glory, your goodness, your generosity, your forgiveness. Thank you that in the cross of Jesus, we see your power and help our trust to be in that. Amen.